Afternoon, great to see you here at the EU public meeting. I like you, but I don't like that microphone. If you can hear me all right up the back, is it ringing too much? It's okay. All right. Have you ever been to the IMAX cinema? Hand up if you've been to the IMAX cinema. Everybody's been to the IMAX cinema. Well, not quite. You haven't. I'm sorry about that. But everyone else has. Um, I must admit, I've only ever been once. Probably because it cost you like a million bucks to go, but I did go once uh, just for the experience, and it really is an experience. There's just, if you haven't been there, uh, really for your sake, uh, let me just explain. There's a huge screen, massive. I, I don't know, what's it? Three stories high, do they say? Five stories high? I don't know how old it is. It's massive screen and often curved as well. If you've been to someone, they're curved around, and you're in a very, very steep, like a lecture theatre, very steep. Uh, set of seats, and so, so when you sit there and when the movie is on, it fills your field of vision, that's the whole point really, it's meant to fill your, all your visual senses, and uh, the, the, you know, the bass is up and the sound is up, and it, it's just a full-on sensory experience. If you've got your Bible there, Exodus chapter 19, turn with me to verse 16, Exodus 19 verse 16. We're told there the story of the Israelites as they were standing at the foot of Mount Sinai. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning, as well as a thick cloud on the mountain, and a blast of a trumpet so loud that all the people who were in the camp trembled. Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. They took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke went up like the smoke of a kiln while the whole mountain shook violently. As the blast of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses would speak and God would answer him in thunder. Go then towards, uh, into chapter 20, verse 18. You'll see how the people summarise their experience. When all the people witnessed the thunder and the lightning, the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, they were afraid and trembled and stood at a distance. And they said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us or we will die. There's a sensory experience for you standing amongst God's people, a couple of hundred thousand of them at the foot of Mount Sinai, the mountain covered in smoke and thunder and lightning and God himself speaking and it sounds like thunder. What a sensory experience. I read a book recently which said that uh, this experience of the Israelites on Mount Sinai should really be the model for our church services. That is, uh, when you go to church, what it says is, you should experience God. And then in the middle of your experience, you should hear God speak. Now, part of the problem is, this really is the only time ever that I can think of in the, in the scriptures that the people of God ever really experience God like this. This is a unique occasion. In fact, this really is the climax in Israel's experience of the Lord, in their, their, their sort of 
personal sensory experience of the Lord. This is it. And a couple of verses that Tim read out for us at the beginning of chapter 19, which you can turn back to, really are the pinnacle, the climax in some ways, or the heart of this whole book of Exodus. You might think, well, come on, we're doing Exodus 19 and 20 today and chapter 20's got the Ten Commandments. That's got to be sort of, surely the sort of the heart of the book of Exodus. Ten Commandments. Everyone knows about the Ten Commandments, whether they're a Christian or not. I would say, no, the heart of the book is actually in those first couple of verses in chapter 19, which is what we're going to look at today. So we're thinking today about the way that God was dealing with his people and I'm going to work, uh, walk us through uh, 19 and 20 and then try to reflect on it in the light of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's our plan today. So first of all, you might like to jot a few notes down. The Lord saves and calls. Exodus 19 verses 1 to 8, which Tim read out for us. What do you notice here in these first couple of verses of Exodus 19? Well, I think the heart of the book is there in verses 4 to 6. Look what the Lord says to the Israelites through Moses there in verse 4. The Lord says, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. That verse there is a summary of the first 18 chapters of the book. Right? He says, You've seen what I did, how I brought you on eagles' wings out of the Egyptians to myself. That's the first 18 chapters of the book. Right there. The Lord saves. He saved his own people. What else does he do? He also calls them. He gives them a vocation, a particular way to live as his saved people. That's there in verses 5 and 6. He says, Now therefore, if you obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession out of all the peoples. Indeed, the whole earth is mine, but you shall be for me a priestly kingdom and a holy nation. What God is describing here is this special relationship that the Israelites were going to have with him. What does he say there of them? First of all, you'll be my treasured possession. Uh, the same word there is used elsewhere in, uh, say, 1 Chronicles 29.3 for uh, King David uses it and he says, we're going to build a great temple to God and we're going to use all of the nation's wealth but I'm also going to use my silver and my gold, David's personal wealth. He says, my, same word, treasured possessions. I'm going to give my silver and gold to the building of this temple. What God is saying here is, the whole earth is mine, but you, the people of Israel, will be my treasured possession. That's who you'll be. That's how dear you will be in my heart. That's how valuable you are in my sight. What have these people done to deserve that great honour, to be God, the one true God's treasured possession out of all the people of the earth? They've done nothing. Nothing to deserve it. They didn't deserve it. It was purely of grace. God chose these people to be his treasured possession out of all the nations of the earth. What else were they to be there? A holy nation. What does the word holy mean? It comes from the word to cut. Um, It it means to separate, to divide. So uh, God describes himself as a holy God. He's different to everything else that is. He is the great creator and everything else is the creation. But his holiness is not just limited to his creator status. His holiness has to do with his purity, has to do with his rightness, has to do with his eternity. And he says to these people, you are to be a holy nation. A nation that is different to every other nation on the planet. Every other people on the planet. You are to be like me as my treasured possession. 
You're to be holy, different, separate. And he's going to go on and explain what shape that specialness should take, that separateness should take. He also calls them there a kingdom of priests. I don't know what you think of when you think of the word priest. It's not a word that we are very familiar with these days. It sort of brings to mind maybe um, a priest in a, you know, a more traditional Christian religion, you know, dressed up in sort of robes and floating around like some sort of ghosty thing at the front. I don't know what your image of a priest is or whether it's a, a priest sitting in a confessional booth or I don't know what it is. I think the image here though is what a priest did in the culture of the day that we're looking at, what a priest did was a priest was dedicated to God. That's what a priest did. A priest was dedicated to God and served God and was different to everybody else in the fact that they served God with all of their life. You weren't a part-time priest. You were in a full-time for life. It was a vocation, a calling. And what you did there was you also represented God to the people and you represented the people to God. You act as like a mediator, if you like, an intermediary between God and everybody else. So what's God saying here to his people, his Israelites? He's saying, you're going to be my treasure possession out of all the nations of the earth. You're going to be my holy people and you're going to be my priests. The ones who will represent me, if you like, be a light of my truth to all the world. So as they live out what it means to be God's people, it's God's way of sending a message to the whole world. This is what you're meant to be. This is what you would be like if you, if you had fulfilled my creation purposes. You would be like this people because they're living out my way in my creation. So they're to be lights to the world. That's what God has intended for these people. He saves them by grace from the Egyptians and then he calls them. He gives them a vocation, a calling. You'll be my treasured possession. You'll be my kingdom of priests. You'll be a holy nation. That really is the heart of what God is doing in this whole book of Exodus, indeed in the whole of the scriptures. That's what he's doing. He's getting his people for himself and giving them a task a task that has him in mind and the whole of the creation in mind. That's what he's on about. Okay, so what happens next? Well, you'll notice there that the people respond in uh, verse 8. Moses comes down in verse 7, tells them everything that the Lord has said and the people answer very positively. It's It's a great response at this point. Everything that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Well, then the Lord draws near to them. The Lord draws near to them. Let's move on in chapter 19. Moses is is told to go down and consecrate the people in verse 10 or or make them holy, get them ready. They're to be a holy nation set apart from every other nation. He says, God is going to actually come down and speak with you so you better get ready. You can see that there in verse 9. The Lord said to Moses, I'm going to come to you in a dense cloud in order that the people may hear when I speak with you and so trust you ever after. The Lord intends to come down and speak to his people. And so they're to get ready because God is a holy God and he's going to come down and speak to his people who are to be a holy nation so they have to holify themselves, get themselves ready and he tells them how to do it. So they get ready to meet their God. 
And the whole uh, next section of the chapter, which we're not going to read through in detail, but it covers that little bit that I read before about from verse 16, when the Lord comes down and there's thunder and lightning and this, this um, smoke and the fire and all this sort of thing. I think that's a picture of God's holiness. The whole account there, I think, is shot through with messages of God's holiness. So you can see it, for instance, there in verse 10, as I pointed out, when they have to consecrate themselves, make themselves holy. Verse 12, you can see it, when they, God sets limits. He says, you shall set limits for the people all around the mountain, saying, be careful not to go up the mountain or to touch the edge of it. Any who touch the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch them, but they shall be stoned or shot. Whether animals or human beings, they shall not live. But when the trumpet sounds a long blast, they may go up on the mountain. What's all that about? Well, God's holy, right? You can't just approach God any old way. It can't be a free-for-all when it comes to the living and true, one true God. You have to approach him on his terms. As it is, just, just as you are and as he is, we can't approach him. We can't just wander up to his mountain and start sort of climbing the rocks or even lay our finger on it because he's holy and we're not. However, by grace, he allows them to approach. But it's on his terms. When the trumpet sounds, then you can come up. And actually it's interesting, as Moses is up there on the mountain, a couple of times he warns them. He warns uh, through Moses, they're warned, stick to the rules. You can see it, uh, jump down there to verse 21. Moses up on the mountain and the Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people not to break through to the Lord to look, otherwise many of them will perish. So you've got to imagine there, right? You've been standing sort of at the foot of the mountain and there's all this uh, amazing sort of IMAX experience going on and then the trumpet sounds and you can all sort of go up. So you all go up to the foot of the mountain and then Moses is called up to see God. Moses goes up. Now I think at that point you probably think, okay, we got this far, it's okay, maybe we could go and have a look too. We could have a bit of a sticky beak through the cloud and see God. But God says to him, warn them, don't break through to the Lord to look, otherwise you'll perish. Even the priests who approach the Lord must consecrate themselves or the Lord will break out against them. Moses says to the Lord, the people are not permitted to come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, set limits around the mountain, keep it holy. The Lord said to him, go down and bring up Aaron with you, but don't let the priests or the people break through to come to the Lord, otherwise he'll break out against them. That is, he has to keep telling them, I am holy. Don't take this for granted. This is not just any fly-by-night routine. You can't just wander up here. You've got to come on my terms because that's who I am. I'm the holy Lord of all. Well, the Lord draws them near. He calls them up. He then speaks to them. I think this is where um, our friend who was saying, you know, Mount Sinai really should be the great Christian worship experience when you go to church. This is what it ought to be like. You feel a movement of God in your belly as the room sort of shakes. And we put the bass amp up to 11, you know. That's how we do that, I guess. That that's what it should be like. And in fact, he goes on to say, and then, and then there should just be a few words. Just a few, because God only speaks 10 words here. Because the Ten Commandments are literally ten words. He only speaks ten words. There's this whole huge IMAX experience in just ten words. So let's get the balance right. But I think it misunderstands the place of these words. These words are at the very centre. They actually hear God speak. 
That's what's significant here. What was God's intention in the whole sensory experience? You can see it there in chapter 20. I'll read again from verse 18 of chapter 20. When all the people witnessed the thunder and lightning, the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, they were afraid and trembled and stood at a distance. They said to Moses, You speak to us and we'll listen, but do not let God speak or we'll die. And Moses said to the people, Don't be afraid, for God has come only to test you and to put the fear of him upon you so that you do not sin. Then the people stood at a distance while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Very interesting if you look carefully at those verses. They they are afraid, they're fearful in verse 18. Moses says to the people, don't be afraid for God has only come to put the fear of him on you. So they're afraid and Moses says, look, don't be afraid. God's just come to make you afraid. (coughs) What's going on there? That doesn't seem to make much sense. It's because you can be afraid in a couple of different ways, can't you? One, he's saying, I think they're just scared silly um, because of just the awesome experience. And Moses says, look, you don't need to be terrified. You don't need to be fearful for your life at this point. You're safe in the hands of God, provided you respect the boundaries that he's established. But he has come so that you would show appropriate reverent, hold him in appropriate reverence and awe so that you don't take his words lightly and sin. The whole sensory experience was was meant to say, listen to the words. Don't take them lightly. You should treat this God, your God, who saved you, who's called you, with appropriate reverence, with appropriate awe, respect, honour, and heed what he has to say. So you don't need to be afraid, terrified, as though God was some sort of a God without any bounds or control that he might just lash out at you without any reason. That's not what God's like. He's just and faithful and he clearly communicates his intentions. But you do need to have appropriate reverent fear of him because of who he is, because of who we are. So the Lord draws them near and at the heart of it the Lord speaks. And here we have what we know as the Ten Commandments or literally the Ten Words there in chapter 20 verse 1. Very interesting. Notice what God has done here. The first thing that God has done is he saved his people and after he saves his people by grace he tells them how to live. See, sometimes people get Christianity all wrong. They think Christianity is a set of rules like the Ten Commandments you've got to live by. And if you can tick them all off, then you're a Christian. In fact, like me, you've probably heard people say that many times. I'm a good person. I'm a good person because I believe in God, believe that he's there and I follow the Ten Commandments. Now, at that point, I'd actually have a question about people often think they're following the Ten Commandments and normally that just means they haven't murdered anyone and they maybe haven't stole their neighbour's wife. And so they think, I can sign off on the Ten Commandments, but they don't actually think about just how demanding the first couple of commandments are. You shall have no other God but me. You shall not worship any other thing except this one true God. And yet so many of us in our culture are given over to worshipping all sorts of things. 
be it possessions, be it family, be it fame, be it success, be it security. We worship many things, many gods. And he says, worship this one alone. So I've got questions over whether people really follow the Ten Commandments anyway. But they also misunderstand the nature of Christian faith where it's not about, I've ticked off all the commandments, hence I'm a Christian. No, you're saved by grace, out of kindness by God. And then you get on and live that saved life. Or if you're at Ancon uh, last week and joining us there, you'll know that you've been raised with Christ to new life and now you're to live out the reality of that raised life. So here God has saved them out of the Egyptians and now he tells them how to live as he's saved, as he's redeemed people. If you like, the Ten Commandments set up boundaries for this relationship, boundaries for the relationship, a relationship that was established by grace, undeserved kindness from God. But this, this sets out some boundaries for that relationship. Well, we're not going to have time today to go through all the ten, um, ten words, the Ten Commandments in detail and try to play them out. But I guess it's worthwhile just noticing a couple of things. The first four seem to focus particularly on the vertical relationship, you might say, the relationship that we have with God, that he is the one true God, that we, have no, that we don't worship other idols, that we um, carry his name well, that, that third commandment about not, bearing the, not, say, uh, not holding the Lord's name in vain. Often we think it's about blasphemy, about just using the word Jesus or or God inappropriately in a sentence. I, don't, I think it's a much, much bigger command than that. It's actually talking, don't bear, don't carry the name of the Lord in vain. That is, don't wear God's name on you in the sense of you're a Christian inappropriately. It's about all of your life, that all of your life might reflect this name that you bear. Don't carry his name, don't bear his name inappropriately. I think it covers all of life, of course, including our speech, but much more than that. The final six commands uh, talk about our relationships one with another, covering all sorts of things, relationships with parents, uh, respect for life, not committing adultery, not stealing, being people of the truth. So the Lord saves and calls these people, the Lord draws near and the Lord speaks. What does this mean for you and I? Because we weren't there at Mount Sinai thousands of years ago. What does it mean for you and I, particularly because of Jesus Christ? What does this mean? Now, I hope you've got a pen ready. A pen and some space. Because what I'm going to try and do now, very crazily, is um, here's a theology for dummies. And then I thought, no, that's a bit rude. (laughs) I guess we're all dummies. So... Don't take it. So I've said, no, let's call it a theology for the time poor. People who are in a hurry, like us today. Okay? In particular, there's a big issue here, right? As we start, as we read the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words, about how do Christians relate to the Old Testament law and the Ten Commandments in particular. Right? That's a big issue. Well, let me try and give you a very brief theology of Christians in the Old Testament law. Uh, I think I've got about six. Yeah, six references. So I'm, just, I'm not going to even read them all out, but I'm just, we're just going to go through them. You might like to jot them down and file it away and uh, maybe follow it up uh, during the week. Matthew 5, 17 to 18. We're told there, Jesus himself says, nothing from the law will disappear until he has fulfilled everything. Nothing from the law will disappear. 
not the smallest jot or tittle, he says, which sort of are the tiny little um, bits of lettering that go with, with sort of the Hebrew writing. Not the smallest thing of the law would disappear until he's fulfilled everything. When is that? I want to say to you, when did Christ fulfil everything? He fulfilled everything in this sense, when he died, when he rose and he ascended to be seated at his Father's right hand. That is, when this got fulfilled, when Christ did fulfil these things, was in his death and resurrection. So I would say, it is now fulfilled. He has fulfilled the law now. So if you go on to Romans 10 verse 4, Paul can say, Christ is the end of the law. And the end there is this word telos, which has a couple of different meanings. It can mean Christ is the goal of the law, the completion of the law, the fulfilment of the law, as well as the temporal end of, the time of the law. Christ is the end of the law, both a fulfilment and its ending. What does that mean for us? Well, Galatians 3, 23 to 26. Galatians 3, 23 to 26. Now that faith has come, we're no longer subject to the Old Testament law. We're no longer bound by this Old Testament law code. We've been freed from it because we are not under the age of law, but we're under the age of grace and faith in the Lord Jesus. Now, that is, a, that is of massive significance. What I'm saying is, not just these ten words, these ten commandments, all of the Old Testament law, you are not bound by it. You are not bound by these commandments if you're in Christ Jesus. Because Christ has come, he's fulfilled the law, it's brought the end of the law, and now we're no longer subject to law. Romans 7, 6. I'm flicking between... Matthew, Romans and Galatians in this section. Romans 7, 6. Instead, we're told there, we now live in the new life of the Spirit. We live in the new life of the Spirit, not under the law. And what does it mean to be living the life of the Spirit? Two more references to go. Back to Galatians. Galatians 5, 13 and 16. 13 to 16. Living the life of the Spirit means living a life of love. Now, at this point, I will just get you to turn this one up because I think it's helpful, or at least I'll read it out to you just so you listen. Galatians 5, 13 to 16. He's talking here about being free now from the law. Galatians 5, 13. Paul writes, For you, Christians, were called to freedom... Only do not use your freedom, that's freedom from the law, as an opportunity for self-indulgence. But through love, become slaves to one another. For the whole law is summed up in a single commandment, you shall love your neighbour as yourself. If, however, you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. And then he goes on, live by the Spirit, I say, and don't gratify the desires of the flesh. This new life in the spirit that we live is a life of love. We're free from all that Old Testament law, but he says, don't use that as an excuse just to now indulge in whatever sinful practice you like. We are now slaves to one another in love. That's the new life in the spirit. And that makes sense because if we finally finish going back to Matthew 22, 
36 to 40, Jesus says the entire law, the entire ultimate can be summed up in, in just two things. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength and love your neighbour as yourself. And he says on those two commandments are built all the rest of the law. So I wonder if you can start to see the picture here. The picture is all the Old Testament law code, Jesus says that's summed up in just the command to love. It gives shape to this command to love, to love God wholeheartedly and to love one another extensively and wholeheartedly. That's what, that's what the Old Testament law was. He says, but now that Christ has come and fulfilled the law, you're no longer under the code, you're in the spirit, so therefore live the life of love, which is what the spirit produces. It's the great fruit of the spirit in Galatians 5. Live this life of love. So whilst you're free from the, the, the letter commands of the Old Testament law, you are to live this life of love. So then how does that work for us? What do we make of the Ten Commandments? If we don't, am I saying you don't have to actually follow the Ten Commandments? Yes, that's what I'm saying. You don't have to follow the Ten Commandments. But I'll tell you what you've got to do. You've got to live a life of love in the Spirit. A life of love to God and a life of love to one another. That's what we have to do. Now, there's one other thing to add here. That is, the Apostle Paul, the one who wrote you know, Romans and Galatians, He's the very same apostle who in 2 Timothy 3.16, 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17 says, all of scripture, including the Old Testament law, is useful. It's God-inspired and useful for teaching and rebuking and training in righteousness. So whilst that Old Testament law code, you're no longer under it, it's still of use to you. Why? Because it helps you to understand what it means to live a life of love. It gives some shape to it. You may not have to follow it to the letter because maybe your context or your situation is different to what it describes but it gives some shape, some help to you to understand what it means to love God. So let's think about then these Ten Commandments in particular. In Christ Jesus, the Lord still speaks today. That's what we just saw, 2 Timothy 3, 16, 17. Through these Old Testament passages, the Lord is still speaking to you. In particular, what he's doing, he's teaching us what it means to love one another and to love him. Love for God is there in the first four commandments. Have no other God but me. Make no idols. Honour the Sabbath. Why the Sabbath? Because the Sabbath was all about honouring God. Don't bear his name in vain. He starts to give some shape to what it means to actually love God. If you say you love God, but you're off worshipping your career or your prospects or finances then you don't love God. The Ten Commandments help you give some shape to what it means to actually love God. But it also helps you understand love for one another. And in particular, it helps us understand the extent of love for one another. Because it tells you, if you think you're a Christian, then you're to love one another. Do you love your parents? How do we respond to our parents in love? Well, the Ten Commandments give some shape to it. Honour your parents. Do we love one another when it comes to our sexual relationships? Do we love one another when it comes to our possessions? Don't steal. 
Do we love one another? And here I think it helps us understand it's not just about things you do, but it's actually about your heart and your head, what's going on internally. Don't covet. Don't long to have what other people have around you. Don't be jealous. Love for one another is, in, is, a, is an internal reality, not just something, not just the external actions. So I think the Ten Commandments actually start to give us some shape to what it means to love God and love one another. So the Lord still speaks today through these Ten Commandments as we seek to live a life of love in the Spirit. But as I said, this experience of Israel on Mount Sinai is so key. It's so key not just for them then, but for us now. In fact, it is such a key moment when God actually saved his people and revealed himself to his people and told them how to live as his people. It's not surprising that that moment is reflected again and again and again and again in the scriptures. They're always talking about it. And it's no surprise either that for Christians, we're often called back to that moment. I'll just show you what I mean here. Whilst the Lord still speaks, we also know the Lord has drawn us near. You've got your Bible there, turn to Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12. Now I'll finish by just looking briefly at these at two passages here, Hebrews 12 and then 1 Peter 2. Both passages which pick up on stuff from Exodus 19. Hebrews 12, verse 18. The writer to the Hebrews here is, is thinking about that moment, that IMAX moment on Mount Sinai. But now he's thinking about it in relation to Christians. And what does he say? Verse 18 of chapter 12. He says, You have not come to something that can be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that not a word be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even an animal touches the mountain, it shall be stoned to death. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What's his point? He's saying, they had a pretty impressive, pretty impressive experience. You've come to something greater. You, Christian brother or sister, have come to something greater, something more amazing. He said, you've actually come to, not Mount Sinai, but the heavenly Jerusalem, the gathered people of God around Jesus and the Father. And you come to those who've been made perfect through a better covenant, with better sacrifices, the sacrifice of Jesus himself, with a better mediator. You've got Jesus, not just Moses, or not merely Moses. So how should we respond? Verse 25. See that you do not refuse the one who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused the one who warned them on earth, how much less will we escape if we reject the one who warns from heaven? At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he's promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. 
This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of what is shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us give thanks, by which we offer to God an acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for indeed our God is a consuming fire. Two things we're to do in response that you might like to jot down. First of all, don't refuse the one who still speaks. That's what he says there. You've come to something greater, so don't refuse the one who speaks to you today, who speaks even through these Old Testament words as you seek to live a life of love. Don't refuse him. Don't harden your hearts to him. And the reason he gives is because there's a greater judgment to come, a greater judgment than they faced. There's a greater one to come. So don't refuse the one who speaks. But secondly, he says, give thanks that you do have come to been drawn to something greater. Give thanks because you've come to something greater. And you give thanks with reverence and awe because remember, God is still God. He is a consuming fire. You know, Christianity is not an intellectual position. So often I find in my own life the Christian truths I sort of hold as just, it's my world view, right? It's how I think, it's how I try to live, but it's my world view. And I, the Christian, Christianity is more than an intellectual position. Christianity is a life lived. It's a life lived in love to God and to one another, don't refuse the one who tells us that. Don't refuse God as he tells us to live this life of love. I'm going to stop there. The uh, last point that I was going to raise with you today was that just like the Lord saved and called them, so Peter says in 1 Peter 2 that the Lord has saved and called us. What he tells us there is that we are now that kingdom of priests. We are now that holy nation. You and I are to live out the calling of God, the vocation he set for us as those he saved by grace. What does that mean? How do you live it out? Listen to the one who speaks. Listen to him who speaks and live a life of love. I'm going to pray for us and this is what I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray in whatever interactions you have this afternoon with people, whether it be in your lectures, whether it be in your tutes, whether it be when you get home with your family, whether it be with your flatmates, whether it be with your workmates if you go to work tonight, whatever interactions you have, that you might be willing to be a slave to them in love. That you might, because that's the way you will live out the calling that God's given you, to be his people in the world, to show forth his holiness, his love, when they see you. Somebody to lead us in prayer. We pray, Father, that by your spirit you would grant us strength and the courage and the self-discipline and the selfless focus so that we might love all of those around us and bring glory and honour to your name. We pray that you would help us to love you wholeheartedly and to love our neighbour as ourselves and that in this way, Lord, we might be your holy people we might be your kingdom of priests declaring your praises to the whole earth. We ask for your help in this. For Jesus' sake. Amen.